The following conversation with Molly Obamsawan, a member of the Abenaki tribe and of the musical trio Lula Wiles, aired on November 29, 2019, on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Apologies for the sound quality. It's not terrible, but it could be better. There were technical difficulties at KPOV. Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role the music plays in social justice and protest and that airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Hello, this is Molly Obamsawin. Back in June, Molly Obamsawin, she's a member of the Abenaki tribe, and she wrote an essay titled, This Land is Whose Land, with the word whose emphasized in italics. Her essay um, appears on the Smithsonian Folkways website. You can find it there at Folklife. .si.edu. She also plays bass and composes and sings with Lula Wilde and performed at the Sisters Folk Festival last September. Molly graduated, she studied jazz performance at Berkeley School of Music and went on to graduate from Dartmouth. I, I didn't actually read her essay when it was first published. I came in through the back door after reading Will Kaufman's criticism of her essay, uh, which he refers to as the misguided attacks on this land is your land. That was in, in August. Um, and um, But I was already aware of her work with Lula Wiles uh, when I read Kaufman's critique, and, uh, and I was very familiar with Kaufman's work as well. His book, Woody Guthrie, American Radical, is, is a really good book, I think, and, and I've used it myself in preparation for radio shows about Woody Guthrie. But I hate to say it because uh, I do appreciate his work, but I think that Will kind of, um, well, I think he kind of, made your point, Molly, but I also think it was kind of uh-huh. a knee-jerk kind of reaction. So I thought, uh-huh. I'd dig, I thought I'd dig a little deeper, and so here we are today. So welcome to um, Radical Songbook. I really appreciate you dealing with this uh, technological problem I'm having here, and uh, thank no you. For, all right, thanks for being here. So I've had opportunity to read your essay, This Land is Whose Land, several times now, and uh, I'd, rather than me giving my impression of it, I'd like to ask you if you could tell our listeners how you came to write it, what your intentions were, and what are the major points that you wanted to make in this essay? Sure, yeah. So I spend a lot of time touring uh, the quote-unquote United States and Canada and um, sort of talking about indigenous issues from stage when I... Um, introduce my song good old american values um and you know we we try to we try to bring up the issues of native sovereignty and the erasure of native people because um there's in our experience in my experience growing up indigenous there's so much ignorance about um the mere existence of native people in this land let alone the struggles that we face today um, which include erasure for sure um and so so yeah, I, I guess just like a lot of road dogging and experiencing firsthand the depth of the ignorance of the American and Canadian public um, about indigenous issues and indigenous struggles. Um, and I, you know, it's it's hard to fight for, it, it feels like you're always fighting up, like sort of swimming upstream against um, the ignorance about about indigenous issues um, when you're trying to be an indigenous rights activist you know you have to like 
convince people that natives even exist in order to start that conversation. And I, as I said in the article, um, talking about indigenous issues because they're so fundamental to the existence of the U.S. and Canada, even even talking about those issues makes you the most radical person in the room. And so maybe some of uh, the people who are sort of becoming hip to Native issues and trying to trying to bring that awareness home to their families over you know Thanksgiving and the, this last month of Native Heritage Month, I think people will probably have encountered that that feeling, you know, being at home and being and maybe trying to talk about the Thanksgiving myth as being. Uh, not entirely truthful, they may have encountered that feeling of being the most radical person in the room for standing up for Native people. Yeah, as a matter of fact, but the New Yorker magazine has an article in this issue that, that kind of deals with um, with this this question. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I, I heard of it. I didn't read it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a review. It's a review of a book by David Silverman called This Land is Their Land, the, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. Well, and it's a it's a it's yeah. a it's a worth worthwhile read, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. And one of the things that I found really kind of interesting about it was right toward the end, there the writer of the review, Philip mm-hmm. Deloria. Philip Deloria says, mm-hmm. um, refers to uh, the falsely inclusive rhetoric in the phrase "This land is your land, this land is my land." Yeah. These lines, he says. These lines, he says, requires the erasure of Indian people who don't get to be either you or me. So he's making exactly, in my view, pretty much the same point that you made. For sure. He's also the son of Vine Deloria, who's a really famous um, Native scholar and writer. Oh, I wasn't aware Um, of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Check out his dad. He wrote the book, God is Red. I believe he wrote that one, among others. Oh, okay. Wow. Thanks anyway, for that. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thanks for that information. Yeah. So, um, yeah, sure. I, I, I thought, you know, like I said, I, I, I came in the back door because I read Will Kaufman's critique, but I think you're, you know, I, I, and, you know, one of the things that, that kind of struck me about Will Kaufman's critique is he kind of, a, he accused you of canceling out Woody Guthrie. And, uh, you did have a brief, you had a brief conversation with him, I guess, on Twitter where you explained right. to him that, and I, I think he's wrong. I don't think you were canceling out Woody. In fact, I think if I recall right, you made the point that you're you're not doing that. Exactly. Yeah, I did explicitly say that in the article. I actually don't believe in canceling. I think canceling is not productive. And, right. Um, there's even I, I I meant to read these read these articles about um, Colin Kaepernick and I think uh, Cornell Dr. Cornell West wrote about. I think it was Cornel West wrote about um, how canceling isn't a real thing and it's being wielded against um, Colin Kaepernick and and it's very clear what the power dynamics are of of that whole shenanigans, I guess. But yeah, I, I was definitely not uh, not advocating for the cancellation of Woody Guthrie. In fact, I, the article that I wrote is hardly about Woody Guthrie at all, but I knew that it would sort of rein in the exact audience that I wanted, which is, um, you know, people who use Guthrie's song, This Land of Your Land, as, um, you know, the the protest song, the, the inclusive protest song, which it's not. And that's, yeah, that's the point I was making. That's the point Philip Deloria was making. Um, 
and it's it feels that I feel that um, Will Kaufman didn't quite get that. Maybe he skipped over that paragraph where I explained that point pretty clearly in the article. Yeah, um, but I think two people are pretty precious about Woody Guthrie, you know, and for better or for worse, I guess. Um, and he, he was a I respect his work a lot, um, and he was a very important radical songwriter and um, galvanizing force of his time. He really was, and I yeah I respect his work a lot, and because we have the capacity to hold multiple truths at once, uh, you know that doesn't mean that his song. Is, uh, isn't exclusive of Native people or erasing of Native people. can be both. Exactly. And, and he can be both, too. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of him, and I want to, I want to get, back, get on to uh, talking about allyship, but just real quickly to kind of finish up on yeah. this. If you look at his own history, you know, there was a point where he was a... He had a radio show in Los Angeles where he he actually, I think he, if I recall the story right, he played a song that had the N-word in it. He got a letter from an African-American listener who really sharply criticized him. And he went on air and actually apologized and tore up the song and made a big deal about it. And, and so he did that, you know, and then at the same, and then, you know, a few years later, he's working for the Bonneville power administration up here in the Pacific Northwest in support of the Grand Coulee project and, and wrote roll on Columbia. And the original song roll on Columbia is really, is, has some direct racist comments about natives. It's about hanging native people, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and and yet at the same time, during that session up in here in the Pacific North Northwest, he wrote "Pastures of Plenty," which is an in my view is just a really a beautiful song. So he's a contradictory. He's a contradictory dude, like a lot of people in the world. But I want to get sure, to. I want to say. Yeah. Please. Really quickly to respond to that, to uh, like I think it's dangerous to um, to put all racism into the same box, you know, because yeah, some, just because someone uh, is racist against natives unwittingly or not doesn't mean that they'll be racist against uh, African Americans and vice versa. You know, if someone is is not racist toward African Americans or, or, or you know. I guess I just um, the, the experiences of racism are very different, and uh, there's actually a really great uh, podcast episode by Dances with Wolves. Um, that's the podcast name um, that talks about can Native Americans experience racism, which uh, I obviously think it's clear that they we can, um, <laughs> but it's sort of our metrics of racism are. Um, are really shaped by uh, the most fundamental um, colorism, racism in America. That that would be white supremacy and um, racism toward black people. But um, I guess it's they're not they don't all appear and happen in the same way. So I think it's slightly dangerous to um, always like I, I guess like assume that the racisms are the same or would go hand in hand. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, no, I would agree. I would agree with that, and I think yeah. that um, uh, for a lot of white leftists, I guess I would say that you know that are are, are I, I've just I've, you, you see it. I mean, we're, who are very quick to condemn um, correctly condemn racism uh, directed at African Americans, but I guess I would say a little less so when it comes to Native people. Um, oh yeah, it's hardly on people's radar yeah. at all. Increasingly, it is, but yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks to people like you. 
I would say, you know, people, people who are willing to cool. to write, you know, write write the kind of article that you did. But but what you what you say in your what you say in your article is that you that you want to you you that, and and I should add to to let listeners know that really you're, you're right. I mean, the, the very beginning of your article is about Woody Guthrie, but the bulk of your article is not about Woody Guthrie at all. There's a, there's an entire history, a great a great concise, I would say. History that's an important history for people to read, I would argue. And you also talk about how you want to use your article to improve uh, allyship. So, it, can you can you talk about that a bit? What 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 is allyship? What uh, and what do you what would you suggest that white people could do to be better allies of uh, of native people today? Right, allyship. Um, I I think. Fundamentally, allyship is uh, understanding the struggle of another person. Um, I think that is like the absolute baseline requirement for allyship, for the beginning of the process of allyship. I think allyship is a process um, and um, requires a lot of work. But um, specifically, I find that white allies um, or white aspiring allies, they do want they want to do something. They're asking that question. How can I be an ally? How can I help? Um, and the just bare bones of like laying the foundation infrastructure for allyship is understanding the person that you're trying to be an ally to or the, the struggles that those people face. Um, and so it looks really differently for different kinds of marginalized groups, racialized groups, um, et cetera. Um, and um, I think I think that sort of American curriculums make it really easy for people to uh, grow to have a hard time with allyship um, because of just the the depth of the knowledge that at least me and a lot of people from my generation that I've spoken with we we learn so much about white American history and sort of the achievements of white historical figures in this country and you learn so little about uh, the other many uh, different kinds of people that have been here since the country's founding um, and before, obviously, Native people, Black people who were brought here against their will from Africa and um, uh, Hispanic or Latino, Latina, Latinx people uh, as well and um so for all of those groups, there's a different knowledge base that you have to have, you have to begin with in order to start being an ally or else your allyship will sort of always be insufficient. Um, so with my article, I was trying to really, really hard, uh, it's a very hard task and I had to generalize a lot and it, you know, it doesn't feel sufficient to me, which is why I am still writing. But I, with my article, I was trying to sort of give as much as I could to give people a start in building that foundation of understanding for Native people. And, yeah. and and your article is not like uh, I mean you're an activist you're you're not you're more than just a, a a member of Lula Wiles and a writer of this one article you've you've been you're you're an activist you've been I've seen pictures <laughs> there's evidence you've been out you've been out in the street <laughs> right so well, I, I I feel limited in that regard because I'm touring so much but I am trying more and more to yeah put uh, put myself on the street put myself in those situations um, where it you can really show and you can disrupt. And, yeah. and, and you and in your essay, you talk about um, uh, 
about your 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 um your family's own history uh in in new england and 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 that kind of helped to form your a lot of your well your viewpoint on on where you are in society right right yeah yeah my my parents are activists my dad was um an aim supporter if not participant in uh the movement he was a participant in the movement as well um and so and and back for more generations as well there are activists in my family and this is michael funky uh this, this is the radical songbook i've got molly um uh, on the phone with me she is a member of lula wiles and uh the trio that performed at the sisters folk festival and she is also uh an activist and a uh author of This Land is Whose Land, Indian Country and the Shortcomings of Settler Protest. There are um, some folks, and P Pete Seeger is among them, who have uh, composed some different lyrics uh, to that song, This Land is, is Your Land. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think of that idea? I think people are really trying so hard to hold on to this song. And, you know, you can make attempts uh, and to try to do that but it's fine. I don't know. I think people will feel differently about it, different Native people that you ask, so I don't want to give, like, the Native opinion because um, <laughs> I can't provide it. Um, but I think there are also a lot of really amazing songwriters out there and Indigenous artists and songwriters um, as well and Black songwriters and artists who would probably just do a better job of writing an anthem of protest than white radicals even if they're you know leftists and i think the music is probably already out there so i think we should try to lift up voices of today and voices of color um and actually do the work and finding out what's out there instead of trying so hard to hold on to uh the works of albeit great artists but like white dudes from the past i think it's not necessary you know they, they get a lot of recognition and they have earned a lot of recognition but so have many other people who haven't gotten that recognition uh, many other artists and and you actually um included a spotify list of uh that uh, is titled native voices playlist a song by periwinkle and uh snotty nose res kids yeah. but a tribe called red and yeah. snotty nose res kids that's really that's very contemporary um uh native music there's a lot I could have and should have included on that playlist. I will admit it was a little bit, um, I didn't have enough time exactly. It was a little bit last minute, but um, and there's so many amazing Native artists uh, writing today and, you know, Old Guard and New Guard, Buffy St. Marie and Shutex Cobble. He's amazing. Rage Against the Machine, you know, there's like such a legacy of it. And you come at this as, as both an activist and a, and a musician, of course. You have some suggested readings uh, at the tail end of your article as well. Could you give some suggestions to our listeners of uh, uh, books or podcasts or anything? You've already mentioned one, but that yes. um, that people could turn to? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a really amazing resource that I just finished reading is Buffy St. Marie's authorized biography. Um, I think Andrea Werner is the, the writer on that. There's a couple podcasts that I'm really loving. Break Dances with Wolves. That's, I, I think, multi-generational uh, Native voices, Native perspectives podcast. And it's really interesting because they, they just really sort of 
they're pretty relaxed about the structure of their podcast, um, but the conversations are amazing, and they bring in amazing guest speakers. Um, Rebecca Nagel has one called This Land, uh, about the land claim case or potential land claim cases uh, going to the Supreme, that are in the Supreme Court uh, right now um, in Oklahoma with the, the Cherokee and Muscogee Nations, Creek Nations. There's also All My Relations podcast. Um, that's a really beautiful one with, uh, again, amazing guest um, speakers. Other books. I have so many that I have read and um, hard to remember off the top of my head. Uh, Lisa Brooks wrote one. She's an Abenaki Sokoki uh, historian called Our Beloved Kin. That's getting a lot of recognition. Um, well, well deserved recognition for sure. But there's a beautiful novel by Tommy Orange called There There that came out this last year. Is that, is that a good start, maybe? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I really appreciate it. I, I wasn't aware of uh, the new biography of uh, of Buffy yeah. St. Marie. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, Mark. it's so good. Is it? Yeah. Um, you know, she's yeah. people, people think of her as somebody from the 70s and 60s, but she's produced two very good CDs in the last three or four years. Oh, she has never stopped working, it turns out. Um, she's just incredible, and... There's so much. It was so amazing to read that biography because I actually, to be super honest, never got very deep into her work. Um, just growing up and everything, I think there's there's a lot of pressure um, that Native people or you know racialized people get to like know everything about every artist of their kind, as it were. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And, and I think I I sort of in my adolescence really pushed back against that. Um, and it, I mean, it gives you really complicated feelings, but I'm really glad now that I read that because especially as a folk musician who tours all the time in white circles surrounded by white people, um, which was also her life for a long time. I just, there's so much in that biography that I was like, did I write this? This is crazy. How, how pertinent it is to me. Yeah. She's been fighting the fight for a really long time and in such a beautiful way. She suffered some blacklisting back in uh, back in the day yeah. too. That's right. I'm actually I'm in the middle of writing my next folklife article, and I write about that. Oh, really? And and so yeah. where where will these where will you, where will that article be posted? Um, it should be posted in the Smithsonian Folklife Magazine. Oh, great. Um, I can't tell you exactly when because it's in the editing phase right now. It's about indigenous resistance movements. I want to talk with you a bit about Lula Wiles, but I don't want to just cut this off. Is there anything more that you want to want to say to our listeners about the issues that we've been talking about here? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess the biggest struggle that Native people face over time with the American public is um, ignorance, and so uh, and ignorance, which is created by the erasure of our people and our movements um, and our voices and perspectives. So if you're trying to be an ally, the first thing that you can do uh, is try to dismantle your own ignorance. And that means admitting that it's there in the first place and um, accepting it. And, you know, it's maybe not your fault that you were taught bad history, um, but if you know that you were and you don't do anything about it, that is your fault. <laughs> so, um, yeah, please do what you can to dismantle the white supremacist society that we live in. Thanks so much for that. For sure. So, Lula Wiles, Lula Wiles has. Uh, when were you? When did you come together as a band, as a trio? I should say. 
in about 2014, I believe, the, the end of 2014. Uh, we played our first gigs together, and we decided that that was fun, and we should do more. <laughs> and since none of you are named Lula, how did the name come about? We all grew up on folk music, um, and um, we were big fans of the Carter family, who were trailblazers in, in folk music and songwriting, American songwriting, uh, and harmony singing as well. And Mother Maybelle Carter was one of the grooviest guitar players out there. So, you know, lots of inspiration drawn from them. And they have a song called Lula Walls about um, the main character was referred to as an aggravating beauty who won't marry the narrator. So she's a sort of a wily gal. And we just altered the title of that song and took it as our name, Lula Wiles. Each of you does your own songwriting and composing. How do you do that together? How do you bring that together? I mean, do you do you write separately? Do you write together? Do you um, how do, how do you make the decisions that are associated with that kind of doing things that way? Yeah, we do a mix of things. It really depends on the songs. So some songs we write totally on our own. Like um, I wrote "Good Old American Values" all on my own, you know, and then I brought that to the band and we arranged it together. And then um, Hometown was one that Ellie had a lot of help on from Isa and I and also her sister, Abigail Buckland. Um, so that was more collaborative uh, because we just, you know, some, sometimes you need help and you need a larger pool of ideas, you know. And, um, and then some songs are just co-writes between, you know, some combination of members, like Shaking As It Turns. Isa wrote a lot of it and she needed help with a few lines. And so I helped her with that one. We do the arranging all together, though. You were fairly recently on tour, right? Oh, yes. We are, are hardly ever not on tour, but we, we were on tour the last few weeks, and we have one more week of touring before before uh, the holidays, Hanukkah and stuff. You did play at the Sisters Folk Festival here in, in Central Oregon. It was really fun. It was a, I think that's such a beautiful festival and really well-run festival. I was really happy about the lineup. It's just so musically diverse and nationally, nationality-wise diverse and ethnically diverse and stylistically diverse. It was just, like, really incredible. Um, we play at a lot of festivals that are um, not so diverse, so that was really a relief. And I heard a lot of amazing music. Um, some of my favorites were uh, Flor de Cavalache and um, Alex Cuba. The last couple of years, they have really made a much more, I would say two or three years, much more concerted effort mm -hmm. to provide a more diverse um, presentations, uh, you know, and, and it's really been, yeah. this past year was really, was really, they, it was really great, you know, and they, and sometimes they have yeah. to kind of. Well, they, the music is better. <laughs> yes, exactly. They do have to occasionally fight off the, uh, I don't know, the old, older traditional folkies, you know, who just, just want acoustic music. So there's a constant balancing act uh, that they have to have to play with you know but that's all right there's a lot of people trying to do what woody country did you know just like the traveling acoustic guitar rambling songwriter and it gets boring and you know the table is large so let's have people anything more that you want to add no i'm I, I feel pretty good okay i feel like we've said a lot and just i guess tell people to read my article please if you go to folklife.si Dot edu and you know, look for her article it's called this land is whose land and um it'll give you a really great history um some of which you may know some of which you may not know and uh it's worthwhile and uh 
and hear hear more of what uh, Molly has to say about about that yeah. song and about uh, allyship. Well, right. Well, thanks um, so much. Yeah. Oh, what? Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.